G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we focus on the hot new growth area for technology startups, fintech. First, Twista speaks to Stone & Chalk CEO Alex Scandera. He's put together the nation's go-to fintech accelerator, and he has a big vision for the future of Australian fintech. And then we'll speak to Simple KYC co-founder and CEO Eric Frost about what banks need and what it takes to close the sale. It's a deep dive into money on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and Getworm, the place where startups and early adopters converge. Willie Sutton, who was an infamous American criminal of the 1920s, was once asked why he robbed banks, and he replied very famously, well, you rob banks because that's where the money is. <laughs> well, fintech, which is the business of banks, that is now the hot new area for technology startups. And this year, something around 15 billion U.S. dollars of investment money is going to flow into fintech. And nearly every global bank either has an innovation arm or a startup incubator, things like Westpac's got reinventure that's going right now. And all of these things are working to disrupt a multi-trillion dollar financial sector. And leading the way here in Sydney is the brand new Stone & Chalk, which has very rapidly become the fintech hub for the Sydney startup community. And it's my pleasure to be speaking to the driving force and the CEO for Stone & Chalk, Alex Scandera. Alex, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here. So tell us how this happened. How did the stars align to make Stone & Chalk a thing? Well, I think there were two parallel tracks that, that collided uh, late last year. We had a, a couple of people that had been agitating to create a bit of a fintech hub here in Sydney for about a year or so. And that coincided with, back in October, the Committee for Sydney, mm -hmm. which is a think tank, commissioned KPMG to do a report on how we could unlock the fintech potential of Sydney. Right. And it was that report that had seven recommendations, one of which was to create an independent, not-for-profit fintech hub. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a kind of way, that helped coalesce you know, some of the guys like Danny uh, Gilligan from Reinventure and I think Toby Heap from um, H2 and a few others to come together and say, well, moons seem to be aligning. And on the back of that, that's where a lot of momentum started to build and interest started to garner in terms of, hey, maybe we actually should do something like this. And, you know, and people stepped forward and said, there's probably space for this and there's probably funding for this. And so it seemed as though not only did the moons align, but the path was very quickly cleared to make this happen. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, Stone and Chalk, being a not-for-profit, has effectively come about from a financial perspective from sponsorship from the state government. But importantly, at the time, there was about 15... Also, large organisations, both Australian and international, mm -hmm. that contributed cash. And what really blew me away about that is that it's really like a pay-it-forward contribution. Mm -hmm. And we always talk about how the Valley in particular has such a great culture of pay-it-forward. Right. I, I mean, it, it does now. 20 years ago, that I think that culture was still forming. And so 
you know, you take a look at it and go, oh, my God, it's amazing now. But it did. It took time to grow. And even here, it's going to take time to grow. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. And I think that was one of the key attraction points for me was seeing how almost the impossible happened where, Mm. you know, 20 or so large companies and government all chipped in because they just thought and believed that this was the right thing to do. And is it because being a non-profit that you're seen as neutral territory? Because the banks, we have four very large banks which are both collaborative and fiercely competitive. It's a very weird combination that they're both at the same time, right? And it seems like unless there is a playground that's demarcated as safe, they aren't going to play with each other. Is that kind of what happened here? Look, I think there's certainly an element of that. Um, And I think there's many benefits in that whole not-for-profit status. Mm. We definitely are, on the back of that, neutral and completely independent. And we have been able to successfully bring together multiple organizations that are, you know, as you said, fiercely competing. So we've got several banks. Yeah. You know, several insurers, um, several super funds, and several technology players. Um, And I think what's really neat about that is because we don't take any equity from the startups or have no claws or rights on their IP, we're also able to attract the best fintech startups. Because they aren't going to think you're going to take a chunk of flesh for just playing. Exactly. And, you know, the smart ones and the mature ones recognize that working with large organizations that potentially have a, you know, regional, in some cases, global footprint Mm. can provide a really unique scale opportunity that perhaps without that type of partnership may not come for you know seven to ten years down the line so the the four banks are effectively headquartered here i mean they're headquartered sort of melbourne sydney but they're effectively headquartered in sydney and so we're talking about you know just in terms of profits every year for the big four banks something on the order of what 30ish billion dollars a year just in straight profit but you're talking about valuations in the trillions of dollars and the super funds and so you have this enormous pile of wealth that's really in a sense almost unique outside of a london or a hong kong or a new york mm. does that mean that sydney has an interesting position that other cities wouldn't have when they approach doing fintech. Absolutely right. And, and I think it lends itself as a both a threat and an opportunity. And what I mean by that is that from my time overseas, it's very clear that the particularly the banks and the mm. super funds here are quite digitally advanced in comparison to a lot of their more mature markets overseas, mm-hmm. particularly in cities around the US and also London. Well, why would that be? I, I don't know. I, I, it's a really good question. Um, perhaps the fact that we are a smaller market here and that we are actually, as Australians, I think quite competitive mm-hmm. has forced some of the institutions here to really ramp up their digital focus. Okay. Um, certainly when I was in the UK, they were only really just starting to enter you know, the mobile space. They were really still heavily um, bricks and mortar branch channels. Online banking was only really just starting to get a bit of focus, and this is back in the end of 2011. Whereas at that time, you know, organisations like our banks here in Australia were well past that point. Right. Um, so from that perspective, as a market and, and as a incumbent set of markets, they've got a really good competitive advantage so far as the fact that I think they're several years ahead of perhaps some of their um, peers in the region. 
Does that then also mean that the talent pool for people who would be doing startups in Sydney would also be more advanced because they're coming out of the banks? And or, or are they? Where? Let, let, let's step back, actually, and talk about you selected. How many companies is it that you're... Yeah, so we've got roughly 55 companies that uh, are in Stone and Chalk now. Right. It's roughly about 180 uh, full-time entrepreneurs that are residents. And um, how, did so you, really how, nice did you, mix. how did you come to that selection of companies? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, effectively, we took the, 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 I guess, the VC approach, which is looking at a whole series of dimensions. Mm-hmm. One thing that I learned from my time working with Techstars is that it comes down to, you know, people, people, product people, right? Yeah, exactly. So, That's roughly the correct order. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a very strong focus on a couple of dimensions with regards to the founders. You know, is this their first venture together? How long have they been working together? What's their experience in terms of previous startups? Yeah. But... Um, Beyond that, there's also, you know, we wanted to make sure we had a really nice diverse mix of proposition areas. So we mm-hmm. didn't want to be too heavy in either payments or, right. you know, robo-advice. We wanted to make sure we had a good spread. What's also important for us and something that we're, you know, we're really pleased about is the diversity of life stage of startups. So we've got teams that are already, you know, uh, revenue generating, cash flow positive, uh, 12 to 15 employees. Oh, okay. So- um, yeah, several yeah. of those guys and um, startups that are you know post-launch, they're roughly between the six to ten, mm-hmm. um, and then a whole range of startups that are you know at the very nascent stage mm-hmm. that are pre-launch, um, MVP formulation, and so forth. So that for us was also quite important um, because a, a big part of, of our value add and philosophy is on the curation of the community and so the support. That, do we that then drives. see the companies that are further along mentoring the folks who are not as far along? Yeah, we, and that's happening naturally, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I think you know some of the feedback we've had is that because we've been selective and focusing on those that are really able to benefit from our help in terms of scaling, mm-hmm. that they've they've really recognised and appreciated the quality of that peer group. And because of that, they're actually much more open towards supporting one another and giving time to each other about you know problems that they're facing, um, introductions or um, doors they're looking to get opened. And there's a lot of natural uh, collaboration happening amongst the startups themselves, which is really neat. So, I mean, you've, you've planted a wide variety of crops in the garden and in the hopes that they will essentially cross-fertilize, to take a metaphor and break it a little too far. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista Series Sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Now, developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever is next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back with Alex Scandera, the CEO and driving force of Stone and Chalk. So, Alex, what kinds of things are you starting to see that Australia may be good at when it comes to fintech? How do we differentiate ourselves from what might be going on in London or in New York or in Hong Kong or in Singapore? 
on all of this? Yeah, there's a couple of observations. One is, I think, given the size of our superannuation industry, right? I, I was blown away when I got home um, earlier this year to find out that we're the f- world's fourth largest pool of superannuation funds. Yeah, it's a two trillion ish, right? Yeah, something like that. And um, that what's what that's done is really create a, a large number of startups that are in the wealth management and mm. super fund space. Okay. So a lot of guys are working on, you know, evolutions of stochastic mathematics, mm-hmm. um, automated um, wealth platforms, and whole new distribution models for superannuation as well as really debunking. Uh, so does that mean that I'm going to have a self-managed super that's going to be an AI within a couple of years? Oh, look, I, I very much think so. Okay. Um, what that might look like you know, when it hits the street, we don't know. But there's certainly a lot of activity happening in that space. Right. So that's one area that you know I certainly didn't see a lot of in London mm-hmm. um, and, and actually neither in New York. Um, so that, so that's, that's that area there. Then similarly, we've seen quite a lot around the data space. Um, and you could argue that so data is not just... Yeah, well, it's, I'd kind of call it data intelligence, but also um, data frameworks. Okay. So one of our companies, Data Republic, launched uh, last week, and what they've uniquely done is they've created a trust framework for sharing data between organizations. Now, that in itself is extremely profound mm. um, because most organizations are trying to figure out how to, how to you know, leverage and, and analyze their own data, yeah. let alone what they can do when they mix that data with a few others and, and see what comes up. Yeah. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, and what we've also started to pick up on is a few other areas like wearables, connected car. Mm-hmm. Um, several startups are playing in the insurance space, and I think that's, I think, quite correlated with the strength of our insurance industry. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's a really nice and neat opportunity for us to, you know, piggyback on on the strength of our you know, retail um, banking in particular, and the fact that that we've got a very strong wealth management and coupling that with digital, clearly that provides quite a lot of data capability and opportunity. Where, mm. I was just going to say that where we perhaps have some gaps is we haven't seen a lot of activity in cybersecurity. Mm. And that's something that um, you know we're certainly going to be focusing a lot more on uh, in 2016. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of it anywhere yet. I, I think that's, a, that's almost a blanket statement is that there's a particularly when I've been talking to insurers, there's a sense that they need to have competency here, but they don't even really know how to get started. And so what I've told them to do is to go find the startups and buy them because this is the way that they bring the expertise in-house. So hopefully then you'll be creating these startups because I promise you that if those startups get formed, they will be bought. As soon as they show any sign of being any good at what they will do, there will be particularly insurers lining up to buy them because insurers will then be able to build risk frameworks so that they can sell cyber insurance, which no one can buy right now. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think you've raised a really, really important point. So we've been having some conversations with some insurers that are our partners Mm. um, and insurers around the world. And there's several companies that are trying to lead in underwriting yeah. Cybersecurity risk. Yeah. Now, at the moment, um, certainly some of the the people that I've spoken to see that in Australia and other markets around the world, they probably classify the majority of of executive leaders and boards as unconsciously incompetent, right? In terms of where they are. With, oh yeah. With respect to cybersecurity. In oh particular. yeah. 
So there's quite a lot, I think, of opportunity there yes. for you know really smart uh, startups, entrepreneurs, and even people in organisations that have a cybersecurity yeah. skill set and background yeah. to actually step out and seize those opportunities because you're absolutely right. There is so much demand and that demand is only going to explode in, over the next few years. Well, and I think the only reason it hasn't exploded is because there is no reasonable way to satisfy the demand if it exploded right now. So, all right. So, so, so there are some real areas here where it sounds like Australia is establishing clear leadership. What does that mean going forward? Does that mean that in the same way that we have humongous, incredibly successful and incredibly stable banks in this country, that we're also then going to see following on from that a reasonably humongous, stable and successful financial fintech sector grow out of that? Does does that have to follow or can we screw this up? We can definitely screw this up. How? What do well, we have to what do we what do we have to do wrong to screw this up? There's a couple of things that come to mind, um, and it, it's a perfect and beautiful question. I love the way you frame that. Um, the first thing is that the government, and, and here you know, the, we've got this incredible window with um, Malcolm Turnbull as the new prime minister yeah. and all this effort and focus around the innovation package. The first thing we can screw up is not have a major emphasis on financial services and fintech in particular. Right. You know, we've seen how in doing so, the UK has really gone from zero to hero. And I really do mean zero to hero in the space of four years. Yeah, because... By the, having a massive focus on fintech. The whole Canary Wharf thing is just like, it's just overnight exploded. Well, I mean, you know, you've got Canary Wharf, you've got East London, you've got Shoreditch. Right. And what started initially as the creative industry is booming has very quickly turned into a fintech boom. Mm -hmm. um, and partially helped by the GFC and how that impacted on the UK economy. But the government's been extremely deliberate about the policies and, and frameworks and focus areas that they've placed on fintech. And we're seeing how that's bearing fruit. Right. So I think that's the first thing that we could very easily screw up is, is miss that opportunity to major on fintech. The second thing I think we could do to screw this up is having our incumbents, so our large established organizations, consider fintech or at least local fintech as a threat as opposed to an opportunity. So... so this brings up a good point because the banks, by supporting Stone and Chalk, are supporting their own disruption. And there is no organization at scale that will be completely calm about that. So do you go around and hand them tranquilizers on a regular basis? <laughs> I mean, how, how, do, how do you find that they are negotiating this? Because mm. this is a big point, right? It's a really big point, And it's something that not every organization understands. <laughs> no, right? no. And, you know, it's funny, it's almost like a cliche, the number of organizations that are coming out saying that, you know, they're going to disrupt themselves. I mean, let's be honest, nobody actually disrupts themselves. Not willingly. Right? That's right. And, uh, you know, Google, they don't disrupt themselves. Oh, God, no. They're they disrupt still selling everybody ads. else. Right? Yeah. So that's that's what I think is is our window of opportunity in that even an organization like Google has finite resources. Mm. So most organizations to maintain relevant um, and at the forefront of their own industries, need to focus on what's core to them, yeah. right? And making sure they do that very, very well. The beauty of, of collaboration and seeing this as an opportunity mm -hmm. is the fact that by partnering well, and by well, I mean partnering in a way that supports and pays it forward to the startups that mm -hmm. they're looking to work with, mm -hmm. will help position them as the go-to organization in their particular little vertical. So whether it's a bank that is the best to work with in a retail or business context, 
or SME context, whether it's an insurer mm-hmm. in a particular vertical that really leads the charge in terms of being the, you know, the easiest and friendliest to work with for startups. What, that, what invariably happens is word will get out and in very quick order, startups will know which are those organizations that are the easiest to deal with, mm-hmm. that are the ones that get it from a cultural and also a process perspective mm-hmm. as to how best to work with startups. And then what we saw happen in the UK and what I was doing with Barclays is that then what follows is that the best startups with the best founders and the best quality propositions will come to those organizations first. So it becomes a virtuous cycle. Exactly. And then now you have a source of new competitive advantage because you're not having to spend huge amounts of money fighting to attract the best talent. Because you have a reputation. Because you have a reputation and you're now able to innovate from the outside in. All right. Final question. It's five years from now. It's 2020. What does Stone and Chalk look like? What is your vision for that? Holy cow. Um, you know, if I could guess what we look like in six months, I'd be pretty happy. Well, what do you want? What do I want? Um, I want our startups to be exceptionally successful. Mm-hmm. And that for me looks like a couple of things. One, it means that there's been various startups that have gone through Stone and Chalk and benefited from our support that have had significant liquidity events. Mm-hmm. They've hopefully, in some cases, exited their businesses yeah. and become serial entrepreneurs, and importantly, serial Australian entrepreneurs in Australia, helping the next generation to do the same thing. I'm hoping that we've had a whole series of success stories between startups partnering well with large organisations mm-hmm. in Australia. Mm-hmm that have then taken that innovation and scaled it to other markets around the world. Mm-hmm. So rather than being the consumers of innovation and, 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 and digital here in Australia, actually we're the creators of it right. and helping to disrupt other markets. Um, so that, they're two things that I'm really, really mindful of and, and see as, as key benchmarks. And on top of that, I'd like to see Stone & Chalk actually expand either in a virtual or physical sense across the country so that we can actually be a framework that supports fintech you know, in every city and state around the country. Um, that, you know, independent of where a fintech startup is based, mm-hmm. somehow Stone & Chalk is helping those guys connect with, reach out to and scale their propositions through, you know, our support and the support of our partners. Alex, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Awesome, Mark. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Hey, this is Mark Pesci. We're coming up to the end. Next next episode will be the last episode of Series 3 of This Week in Startups Australia, and we're getting ready for Series 4. And it's time for us to have a little talk about sponsorship. If you want to get your brand out there and get it heard by many listeners throughout the country who are technology-aware, startup-aware, or maybe you know someone who fits in that situation It would be great if you could connect us with them because we can offer them an amazing package of ads. You can buy a single advertisement. You can buy a whole series like our two sponsors this series who have bought all of the ads. We can give you an audience of people who are listening to the show, who are fans of the show, who are loyal to the show, who will listen to the brand leaders who buy space on the show. So if you're interested, drop me a line at mpesce, M-P-E-S-C-E, at gmail.com. (laughs) 
When you enter the world of fintech, you very quickly learn that there's a whole language of acronyms, and you hear these acronyms all the time. One of the most common of these is AML, that's anti-money laundering. There's Basel III, which are the latest recommendations for the capital requirements for banks. These were instituted after the GFC because the governments don't want to have to bail out all of the banks again. Another one that you hear all the time is KYC, but I'm not going to tell you what the term means. I'm going to let our next guest handle the heavy lifting on that. Eric Frost is the co-founder and CEO of Simple KYC. Eric's fintech startup was accepted into the highly competitive first round of startups admitted into Stone & Chalk. It's a pleasure to welcome Eric to This Week in Startups Australia. Okay, so Eric, what is KYC? Oh, that's a great question, Mark. I get that a lot. Um, So KYC is essentially know your customer. Some people call it know your client, but... um, in financial world, it, it's quite a common term, as you as you mentioned. Um, and uh, it basically came about. Um, I was at a, a large financial institution for for many years, and uh, um, when they onboarded customers, particularly small business and commercial type customers, it was a huge problem where it was taking something like fifteen to twenty days. Customers would would drop out of the the onboarding process because they just got sick of the process, really had struggled with it, and uh, just just a big co- problem at the company I looked at. Why why is that process of knowing your customers so complicated? A, a lot of it has to do with just regulatory requirements. So um, one of the the big components around knowing your customer is is uh, just knowing who you're dealing with, and it, it's highly regulated under um, anti money laundering. Um, requirements and counterterrorism. Um, other components include, you know, the credit assessment, but the the AML in particular is the one we're solving for right now. Okay, so a bank wants to know who they're dealing with because they want to make sure that essentially it's not a terrorist or a drug dealer or or some other type of criminal because if they get caught enabling a criminal, they go to jail. Exactly. Um, no one wants to be associated with with. Um, with helping the money flow of, of criminal activity or terrorism, certainly. Right. Okay, so how much of the bank's process, if you take a given bank, how much of the bank's process is geared around satisfying these requirements? How much energy do they have to burn into them? Oh, it's it's a huge amount of energy. Um, what I find at the financial institutions I talk to is that they have large sales teams or people in bank branches that are sort of that first screening process. Mm-hmm. So you're talking uh, thousands and thousands of people across Australia that are, are trained to 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 um, to do some screening and know, ask the right questions to know their customers. And then you have a second check, a quality control team that then processes and do due diligence to make sure that the front line did it correct. And then even past that, you have audit and and uh, and regulators doing doing checks. So it's a huge amount of energy, and it's quite a quite a pain point that most every single bank um, I know in Australia suffers from. So, and this you you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say this must represent an enormous pain point. And of course, a pain point is a flashing red opportunity sign to an entrepreneur. And so it must have seemed that way to you then. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that that's exactly why I'm doing it. It was a big pain point that I had personally experienced, a big pain point that everyone I talked to suffers. And 
then you go and you deal with the actual customers of these banks mm -hmm. and they're really suffering you know no small business has time to put all their paperwork together like trust deeds and financial statements and and then go back and forth it's it and and banks don't want to do it either they want to get their customers through the process as quickly and painfully painless as possible right and of course it builds costs into the systems which then end up preventing the banks from servicing potentially all of the businesses they'd be able to serve because at a certain point it's not cost effective exactly yeah it's a gigantic cost and it and a lot of it is in in labor and and not in technology so you know um financial institutions are are struggle a lot with building um um, technology, they, they try, but there's only so much they can do. And they're not technology companies, they're financial institutions. Well, it, it is interesting because is that a bank, you know, just from a more philosophical point of view, is that a bank misunderstanding what it is? Or is a bank fighting against the fact that it's trying, it needs to be a technological organization in the 21st century because money is now bits? Yeah, you know, I, I think... I think a lot of banks have have um, um, thought of themselves as being able to do anything and everything, and, and that includes the technology. And uh, most people I talk to at banks now, they, they realize that they're not very good at that. Um, and they're still secretive institutions that, mm -hmm. that try to hold everything proprietary and in-house and aren't very transparent and, and open, but they're starting to get that way. Um, and, you know, I think we're one of the sort of first companies, certainly one of the first fintech companies in Australia that they are talking to. And uh, it's slowly changing, but I, I think more and more because they get that they have to really boost up their, their technology capabilities. All right. So this is it. So where the bank is prepared to admit that they don't have a strength, they're then prepared to go outside and look for a company, a fintech or a partner who has a solution to their pain point. So that, that then comes to simple KYC. So what solution are you offering to their pain point? Yeah, and, and when I say they're looking, it's, I think it's the start of a journey. They're, they're not, mm. not quite there yet. But um, yeah, so we're, we essentially are software as a service that fits into the back end of that, that, um, that bank or financial institution. Um, it's not customer facing, but essentially it sits in the back end and, and integrates with their systems to onboard and process new customers and meet all the KYC, know your customer, anti-money laundering requirements. And when it does that, does it speed things up? Does it lower the cost? What is the value proposition? Yeah, look, it's the the it's it's exactly those two things. Um, the the reduction in costs, particularly in removing and and showing how we can reduce the the labor component, is quite an easy value proposition to uh, to explain and and sell. It's it's a very straightforward. Um, value proposition to explain. But I think more importantly, and the one I'm seeing out there today is is that customer experience. Um, banks wanting to make their customers suffer a little bit less. and, uh, and <laughs> Because it's so good much business interest. to do that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So right. harder to put a dollar value on, but, but one that I'm, um, I think really sort of resonates with the, the people, you know, the companies I'm talking to. Right. Okay. So one of the weirder things about being a fintech company in Australia, if you were a fintech company in London or a fintech company in New York, you'd say, okay, we're going to go to the banks and someone would hand you essentially a telephone book with all of the banks in it. 
In Australia, someone's going to hand you a sheet of paper that is yeah. going to have yeah. all of the banks on it. That is, all four <laughs> of them. And how does that change how you need to work as a salesperson CEO, not just mm. sort of as mm. um, a business, but as a salesperson, knowing there are essentially four customers with some small additions, but there's four customers for what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, a really um, tricky one when you're forming your sales strategy. Um, <clears throat> for us, you know, we we, we want to get into the big four, and it's it's in our financial plans. It's it's a big part part of it. Um, but we're very conscious that we don't want to at this point because we're so early formally mm-hmm. approach them um, because you're afraid they could just sort of roll over and crush you. Or... Uh, not really. I don't think they would be able to do the things we're doing, and they don't really have the interest in right. it, to be honest. I mean, when you look at the projects they want to spend their time on, it's more sexier things that build up in the <laughs> right. in their, their own companies. I'm not quite worried about that. But what does worry me is I don't want to go in too early and put a story to or, or sell to them and then get knocked back and it it forms their opinion about us. So it's that first impression thing. Exactly. So what I'm doing is talking on the fringe to them in a much more informal way, Mm -hmm. learning about what they're doing, going out to other sort of large banks and financial institutions to sell to with the idea that I'll then go in when I'm ready into, into the big four and formally approach them. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and now a few words about Twista sponsors Get Worm. Startups need to attract early adopters before reaching out to a larger crowd, and Get Worm is the place where startups and early adopters converge. It's the platform for startups to incentivize early adoption through the creation of perks. These are rewards for being part of that all-important first group of users. So if you've recently launched a startup, if you're planning to launch a startup soon, sign up as a startup on GetWorm and gain access to a growing user base of early adopters from all over the globe. The early bird gets the worm at GetWorm.com. We're back talking to Eric Ross, the co-founder and CEO of Simple KYC, one of the fintech startups in Stone and Chalk. And we're talking really right now about what the sales cycle has to be like when you're dealing with essentially a country that's got four of the largest banks in the world (laughs) and not much else. Now, does this mean that for you also, your sales cycle is really, really long? It's not just sort of you walk Mm. in, do your dance and then Mm. walk out again? Yeah, and that that's the hardest part of being a startup. Trying to sell to enterprises is totally rigged, not against you, um, because the reality is is that to become a vendor of these these large financial institutions, um, you have to go through quite a process, a due diligence process, um, and not only that, there are, you know you can present an opportunity to them that may save them millions of dollars, mm. uh, but they you know no one's going to lose their job if they don't get that. <laughs> sale done right? right so the feeling of urgency among them is just not nearly as high as it is with you so well um, and of course again the the curse of the big four is that they're all fat happy and profitable mm, right mm, it makes them yeah uninterested in innovation in a way that other banks in other markets might be right? yeah so you're yep. fighting that as well and that's true as well absolutely okay so as a startup 
you know, with a limited pool of capital, which means a limited pool of time to work within, how do you adjust this long enterprise sales cycle, which is even longer because we're dealing with Australian yep, banks, yep. to the fact that you're a startup and you have to actually earn revenue? Yeah. So two two things to that. One is that um, we're spending our time with with companies that where we have good sponsorship mm-hmm. and ones that can move a little where we believe they can move faster. Certainly, maybe not as fast as we'd like, mm-hmm. but the ones that we think have a lot more certainty and are good use of our time. Right. Um, and those will be the ones that that we will be be launching with uh, over the next couple months. How did you find those sponsors within those organizations? Um, it sounds like that's really, really key. industry contacts, just from my prior work experience. Right. And because uh, you've had an entire, you're you are not a technology entrepreneur. You are a what what well, I would think of as a banker, right? I'm a corporate guy turned startup guy what okay so let's just talk about that for a second what happened did you just go one day wait a minute this is this is this is not exciting enough i need to uh, scare myself by doing a startup Ah, uh, the opposite i always wanted to do a startup and i got lost in corporate world <laughs> and uh just sort of lose track in life and uh right. and one day I, about a few years ago i said you know i actually gotta stop dreaming and actually doing here wow uh, that's a that's a big step, though. You don't normally see people take the step out of the very comfortable world of banking and into this world. I mean, there's, I guess, there's a core of fintech people who are now doing it, and we're and we're seeing that. But you're still sort of a rare bird. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I certainly a lot of people in corporate world do do talk to me and ask me how I I went about that mm. and. And they they think about it, but you know, at the end of the day, you're right. It's it's a hard decision to leave the safety of of a corporate job that you know has a nice income, and go into the uncertainty of a startup world. Um, now that I've done it, I think it's a lot easier than than uh, than than it it seems like when you're in that corporate job. But <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it is it is a bit of a it's definitely a mindset change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the bigger bigger component of that is just going through that mindset change and becoming and thinking like a startup rather than someone who is in that corporate world where you have um, everything sort of at your need. Right. But you also have processes. And I guess when you're embedded in those processes, the last thing you actually do is question those processes. Whereas if you're in startup mode, you're constantly questioning process. How can I improve this? How can I shortcut that and all of that? Oh, I think I really suffered in the corporate world because I was constantly questioning the process. But so Probably you were help me. You were an entrepreneur trapped in a banker's body then I, for a while. Yeah, a little like. bit, a little bit. I, I struggled for for quite some time to so adapt. What's it like being in essentially on the ground floor at Stone and Chalk? Uh, Stone and Chalk's great. Um, you know, very very new. It opened up in in August, mm-hmm. um, but it really is the center of fintech and fintech in Australia and particularly in Sydney is just growing so fast right now. Um, it's it's. Uh, it's a great environment. Uh, it's it's really nice. They've got lots of events there, um, and you know a lot a lot of buzz, a lot of people talking about Stone and Chalk. Have you found? Because Alex was, I think, very happy about the fact that the he got the mix right, so that there are always there's always someone to turn to if you have a question. Have you found that that's been the case? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's quite a variety of um of uh, companies in there from robo investments to to lenders and. And so on. So, so you've got a, quite a variety of startups to talk to, but as well, you have a lot of sponsors that are um, good, 
good to talk to as well. And, and then just others that are coming through uh, the Stone and Chalk area mm. um, who have an interest who you can always talk to. So th- you know, there's definitely quite a variety of people you can ask questions to. Are the needs for fintechs specifically sort of different in any way than a need for a, a, the needs of a general technology startup? Do you need more legal help? Do you need more regulatory advice? I mean, how does that affect your business? Because you are working in an area that is mm. highly regulated, mm. that there is a lot mm. of commercial law around. Yeah, yeah. Um, regulation, you're right, is, is a big component. I think startups are traditionally not very good at dealing with, with regulation. Right. And So uh, do you have a lawyer on staff? Um, um, to, to handle the regulation issues, or well, for us, we we're actually more uh, a facilitator to help companies meet their regulation. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be uh, understanding regulations got to be core to us. Okay, um, and and we don't have a, a lawyer on staff, but I have spent quite a bit of time understanding it. Um, we don't give legal advice, certainly, but. But we need to understand it and know how to deal with but it. But you know that you're compliant with the regulation because that's the core service offering. Yeah, exactly. So we sp- had spent quite a lot of time understanding the regulation and how all our potential customers deal with the regulation. So it's interesting. I mean, to make an analogy, it's like someone who's in a networking company who would know a core protocol like HTTP or TCP IP. And you'd know that because that's the core product offering. In yep. your case, it's the core KYC regulations that are your core product offering. Exactly. I, I'm probably the only startup that's ever read the Anti-Money Laundering Act at least <laughs> 10 times. So <laughs> probably one of the few in the world, really. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that with some pride and I guess with some terror. It's, yeah. it's going to be a bit of a... <laughs> All right. Is simple KYC something that is applicable to banks that are outside of Australia? Oh, yes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, what we're creating is is a platform. Um, and we're, we're building it customized to Australia, but we're building it in such a way that uh, we can add scale and add on new new countries in, in different jurisdictions. And each of those will have their own KYC and AML regulations, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. there's no there are some international frameworks, but it's mostly just done on a nation by nation basis. Is that correct? Yeah. Every nation um, in in, our, in this space, there's there's two main things. One is is regulation that mm-hmm. is usually principally based is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but the data sources and the ability to fulfill on that is is different, okay. um, and there are certainly niche components to the regulation that that present challenges. So, as CEO, you must have imagined what is the trigger you pull when you start to go after your first international sale. How do you know when you're ready for that? You know the way the way we're doing it is we'll we'll do it through through customers. Um, so I, I actually earlier this year um, spent a bit of time in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. meeting with everyone I could to learn about all the different regulation and challenges that a- are in Asia. Right. Um, but yeah, after that post trip, I, I realized the way for us to expand is through a customer and. Um, so a know, referral, in other words, or a customer that has no international... a customer that we work for in right. Australia that is a global company gotcha. and has these challenges, and and that's exactly what we're talking about with one already. It's mm-hmm. almost too early, but one of our early day customers is is looking for exactly that. They want some solutions in other markets that they have. Wow, Eric, it sounds like fintech is the new growth area in technology. Is that what you're seeing? I mean, are you seeing this as being the hot area of a hot area? Or are you seeing it sort of starting to cool the further we get away from the GFC? 
You know, I, I think I think the GFC created some opportunities. People uh, came out of the GFC and really started questioning the way financial services works. Mm. And frankly, a lot of the banks were letting down their customers. And they and that's because they were dealing with so much regulation and problems. They just couldn't figure out how to do it. And they're just bombarded. And so the only way to push the boundary and really start getting the day-to-day customer of your average person or small business to get back to to providing a product that they can do is through startups and technology. And I think that's exactly what's happening and is going to keep happening. Um, and, uh, and, and fintech's certainly hot, and, and Australia is just really well positioned to be, to be a leader because it has such a good uh, financial service sector, um, and it's well-placed in Asia to, to expand, I think, throughout Asia. Eric, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Great. Thank you, Mark. I've just come home from Turkey where I gave a talk at the G20 at an event called the Global SME Finance Forum. Now, the Global SME Finance Forum exists because around the world it's been recognized that banks are not lending money to small to medium enterprises because it's simply too expensive for the banks to be able to do business with them. And I got to see all of these fintech startups that are producing these amazing techniques for being able to connect small to medium enterprises into the banking system at minimal cost to the banking system. One of the most interesting of those was a company called First Access, which if you're in East Africa and you're a small business and all you have is basically a small paper trail and no credit history because you've never worked with a bank, they will actually be able to analyze your mobile data, how you're using your phone when you're sending your texts, and they'll be able to create a credit profile from that because they've done the data analytics work to make that happen. And so we're now starting to see this new era of data analytics sweep in and affect the entire financial system. This is the next wave of fintech. And so when Eric Frost comes onto the show and says that simple KYC can do this for knowing your customer inside of a bank and dramatically lowering costs, what I'm seeing is more of what I was seeing when I was in Turkey. And when I hear Alex saying that analytics is going to transform the banking system worldwide, I can believe him because I'm starting to see it happen. The future belongs to the folks who figure out how to marry data and money. Now, if you want to see photos of our guests or find links to their companies, you could drop by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You're also going to find all sorts of previous episodes, articles, lots more stuff. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Now, big thanks to series sponsors Braintree and Getworm. It is their support that keeps making this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for the hard work to make this podcast a joy to listen to. Thanks to Alex Scandera and Eric Frost for making the time to come onto our show and tell us all about their amazing work. We will be back in a fortnight with our final show of this series and the final show of 2015. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>